podcast, a podcast made by the Ocean Research and Conservation Association, sharing how scientific facts drive real environmental change. For our first episode, I have Dr. Edith Wetter. She's our founder, and I just wanted you to give us a background on ORCA. Hi, Edith. Hi, I'm Dr. Edie Witter, and I'm the Senior Scientist and CEO of the Ocean Research and Conservation Association. When did you first get the idea to found ORCA, and how long did it take to go from just a thought to a manifestation? I think I first started thinking about it around 2003 because where I was working, Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institution, was clearly winding down their submersible program, which is what brought me there in the first place. And Mm -hmm. so I was thinking about moving on to an academic position, but I was also influenced by a lot of the reporting about what was happening with the ocean and the deterioration of the ecosystems locally and and worldwide, and decided I didn't feel right about just going on doing business as usual. So I was talking to a colleague of mine, Charlie Yinch, who's a visionary oceanographer, who started his own oceanographic institution, Bigelow Laboratories in Maine, Mm -hmm. and talked about the idea of starting my own institution. And I think the idea originated with him. (laughs) And uh, first I thought that was kind of a crazy idea, but the more I thought about it, the more I kind of liked the idea. So in 2005, I took the plunge. Wow, so it took you a total of two years. Well, a year of thinking of it. It really wasn't that hard to do because you you can start a 501c3 pretty easily online these days. How did that work? Your expertise at the time was in submersibles, and then you went to start a 501c3. So what was that online process like for you? There's different packages you can use, but we used LegalZoom, (laughs) and you just kind of answer questions about what kind of organization you have, what the general purpose is, what the specific purpose is. And the idea behind uh, not-for-profit is that if it is serving a community in a way that government isn't, then it can be tax-free, which is kind of remarkable. Your initial intention for ORCA was to be a place that designed technology to monitor, protect, and restore aquatic ecosystems. And then 14 years later, we're engaging in citizen science and education. We have a huge internship and volunteer program. We're interacting with politicians, and now we have a podcast. What happened? Yeah, that kind of all got away from me, didn't it? (laughs) Um, Well, the original plan was pretty simple. We were just going to develop technology and use the sale of the technology to be able to finance science. But there wasn't a lot of interest in paying for monitoring, especially after 2008 when we had this horrible economic crash. Mm -hmm. And actually, I wouldn't have been able to keep ORCA going at all, except that I got a MacArthur Fellowship, and I sunk all of that money into ORCA and into the development of the water quality monitors that we were working on, Kilroy's. But because there wasn't this economic driver for monitoring, but I felt monitoring was still the key to being able to address our conservation challenges. I started to look for low-cost solutions and other ways to do it. 
And so gradually we have branched out into doing more and more other method methods. I mean, we still have the Kilroys, but we have developed pollution mapping techniques and other methodologies. We're very, very much an applied science organization, and we try to never end up with the conclusion we just have to do more science. We try to end up with a recommendation mm-hmm. that's going to make a difference for the community. Yeah. So we've talked about a lot of the ground we cover here, but tell us more about the Kilroy Monitoring Network that you built and also the Medusa camera system that you've designed and their journeys from just ideas to sketches to manufacturing. So when I was working in deep sea biology, I worked a lot with engineers to develop the technologies I felt were needed. So I felt like we weren't exploring the ocean in a sensible way. In fact, that we must be scaring a lot of animals away. And so the Medusa was a way to address that challenge. It was originally the eye in the sea, which was using far red light that's invisible to the animals and an optical lure that I believe might be attractive to large predators. Mm -hmm. And the Medusa is kind of a version of the eye in the sea that was smaller and easier to deploy and could be deployed on its own. It didn't have to be carried down by a submersible. It could just be dropped off the back of a ship. So that idea actually led to getting the first video recordings of a giant squid ever captured in its deep sea environment. And we did it again with the Medusa just this summer. So it clearly worked. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty exciting. The Kilroy was this concept of trying to develop lower cost, smaller systems which we did. The Kilroy is is significantly less expensive and smaller than comparable systems, but it's still considered pricey by most people. It's a concept problem in some ways. I mean, we don't think of any anything about spending crazy amounts of money on Bob's barricades, for example. <laughs> and it's, you know, that's a safety issue. Right. But It's a safety issue to be monitoring your water quality, and people are starting to understand why when we have these toxic algae blooms that are impacting our human health, our real estate values, our tourism dollars, it's having a huge impact. And so if we would just get smart about it and start monitoring to be able to figure out where the pollution is coming from and get it stopped at its source, we could turn our community around and make it a desirable destination instead of someplace that wants to be avoided because you might get yourself sick. Right, right. Specifically, when you had the idea, were you the one to sketch it out and did you mail it in to a manufacturer? How did that detailed process work? No, what we had engineers on staff mm-hmm. and so I was just stipulating as the scientist what parameters we needed to be able to measure at what kind of rates. Okay. And there is the need to be able to figure out trade-offs, you know, what you're willing to give up in terms of size or cost or frequency or resolution. And so it's very useful to have scientists and engineers able to work together to develop instrumentation that's going to be useful to the scientist. Right. So what does a typical day look like here at 1420 Seaway Drive? I don't think we have too many things that you could call typical days. (laughs) Uh, Today, for example, I actually did a radio interview this morning for the Arts Council Uh because we just had some murals installed in our new Citizen Science Center. 
and then I drove down to Juneau Beach to have a meeting with the Loggerhead Marine Science Center because we're talking about a collaboration involving turtles and turtle monitoring, but to try to apply this one health concept that we have been working on and others are as well Mm -hmm. of the fact that it isn't just human health or it isn't just animal health. It all is tied back together through environmental health. Right. I can speak to that as well. There's not really a day that I can say looks like any other. Everybody's in and out and on different schedules, but somehow we all seem to end up collaborating and bouncing good ideas off of each other. Orca engages in a lot of local science, like we were saying. There's a lot of benefit in working with the community around you. So what does that look like here, and what's the significance to you of neighborhood research? Well, one of the things that I was kind of stymied by when I first started ORCA was recognizing that there's this disconnect between knowledge and action. Mm -hmm. And so you have science that's kind of done off in a silo somewhere, and it's slow and plodding and meticulous, and you produce this very dense piece of research that gets published and put on a shelf. And then over here, you've got the policymakers that are making decisions that actually could benefit from that knowledge, but they don't. Mm -hmm. And so how do you put the two together? And so I did some research, and actually the Packard Foundation had done a study on this, and they had found that the most effective way to link knowledge to action in a community is to get the community stakeholders working with the scientists to collect the data. Right. Something that's nowadays called citizen science. I'm not sure it was called that at the time that that report was put out. But it's something that we've tried to incorporate into what we do here at ORCA. So we try to get the community active with us. We've worked with high school kids. We've worked with volunteers. We've worked with middle school kids to get them involved in collecting real data. Right. And that is something that we really try to emphasize There's a lot of jumping on the bandwagon of citizen science these days, and it's counterproductive if it isn't good science. Right. And so that's that's our starting point is to make sure it's good science, first of all. So you're saying, you know, you want to keep it accurate, but you also want to empower people and challenge them to take responsibility and sort of invest in their environment in the way that somebody who dedicates their life to science would do simply because they're interacting with it and they live there. And I think a lot of times growing up nowadays, we can be so stuck within the parameters of a 12-inch screen and we don't lift up our eyes and look at the world around us. So I think that's a really important value to instill in people who are growing up these days. So there are thousands of research organizations across the globe, and I know you have a lot to say on what makes ORCA different. So how did you manage to distinguish your organization from every other one out there? We're very much a boots-on-the-ground organization, so we're not so much about advocacy as we are about trying to do the science that will find the solutions. And trying to make sure that we only address issues where we've done enough science that we're pretty convinced that what we're saying is right. I mean, you should always be open to the fact that you may be wrong, but you want to be as careful as you can and not just jump on some bandwagon because that's what everybody's saying. 
right. is the right thing to do. We try to do enough science experimentation to convince ourselves that what we're advocating for is actually going to be the best thing for this location at this time. Mm-hmm. This might be a harder question for you, but what's most special about ORCA to you? Absolutely the team effort that we have going here. Call it Team ORCA, and it really is an amazing team of people. And I think a lot of people feel that when they work here. Everybody's opinion is, is valued. We're really trying to think outside the box. So it's really okay to brainstorm and think about, you know, well, maybe we should start a podcast. <laughs> Here we are. And here we are. (laughs) If there's one thing that you would tell our listeners to go do if they wanted to get involved after having listened to our first episode, what would you tell them? Well, absolutely go to our website. There's a lot of information there about what you can do that can make a difference. And it's at a lot of different levels depending on your dedication. Right. Teamorca.org, I believe it is. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Edie, for being here.